The banjo is a world of sound. Down low, it can bark. And up high, it can be like bells. Be strident and then whisper. Go from a harpsichord to a talking drum. Like a Model T Ford in a syncopated rhythm, it can be plaintive and mournful, and then explosively articulate. It's like watercolors, full of happy accidents. It's asymmetrical and it's interesting to look at. It's hard to tune. It's recalcitrant. It's a musical mule. It has a voice. Stephen Wade, from his album A Storyteller's Story, Banjo Serenade, and Stephen Wade is on the line. Welcome to WLRN, Stephen, and tell me about the song we heard, Banjo Serenade, and your album, A Storyteller's Story. A Storyteller's Story, Sources of Banjo Dancing, is an album um, I did that uh, marks the 40th anniversary. It came out of my one-man show, Banjo Dancing. And what I'm uh, probing in that album are, well, our sources, uh, which includes, you know, recordings of myself with my teachers, teacher Doc Hopkins, when we were on The Voice of America, as well as new recordings that I made for it. Um, and, there are, you know, there's a 44-page booklet with it, and, and it sort of goes into some of that. There's a series of traditions that were certainly afoot that I, uh, upon which banjo dancing stood and and... Uh, made it all possible. But back up for a second. What is banjo dancing? Banjo dancing was a one-man show that I wrote and performed for 20 years. And uh, and about a million people came over the years. And I played uh, at the White House for President Carter. And, uh, and it ran here in Washington, D.C., where we live. Um, my, my wife and I live we, here. Uh, for 10 years at the arena stage. And actually, the last time I played banjo dancing as the show was in your state, in, at, at, uh, in Sarasota, at, at the Florida Studio Theater there. Well, and well, that, well, for 20 years, why don't you perform it anymore? Well, I perform new things. I mean, I, I've got all sorts of other things I've been doing since then. For one thing, I wrote a book, and, and that sort of took a lot of time with it. Uh, and I still perform, and I also, you know, t teach. And and um, I was at uh, George Washington University Department of Music there for a year, and now I'm a, a visiting scholar there. And 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 I uh, led a, a music program, American Roots Music Program, out in Colorado for five years. Uh, and um, so there's a lot of different ways of working with it. I guess the repetition got, you know, there's there's a new ways of doing things that, that, you know, in a theater show they just require you to just. I, they time every show to the second, and if you go a second, you know, and so if a show gets logged, that's that's a sin. And so uh, now I've been exploring just other ways of working with materials and and still learning songs and 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 music. So I, it's just if 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 all what if what I did for many years was repeat myself, now I never do. So uh, <laughs> uh, Stephen Wade is on the line. The book you. Sp wrote uh, the beautiful music all around us uh, is such an outstanding piece of work. I, I, the stories in it are going into such details, and it started because of some recordings you heard, and you wanted to find out the story behind the recordings? When I was a little 
Uh, when I was a teenager, my uh, teacher Fleming Brown said, "If you want to know about this music, you have one way to do it is to uh, listen to the recordings made by the Archive of American Folk Song." And at that time, they had issued some records, uh, uh, phonograph records of their holdings. And uh, beginning in 1942, those records began to come out on 78 RPM. They were purchasable, I guess, but mostly they were just to libraries. And there was one library in Chicago where I grew up where I could hear them. So I'd go there and, and I, the image was planted firmly in my mind that the sincere student would have headphones on and listen. And, and then eventually visit the archive of folk song at the library, which I did many times since then. And but. Uh, so I'd listen to those records, and then it was just filled with these beguiling, fascinating names, you know, of, of points in the American map, whether it was Thaddeus Willingham of Gulfport, Mississippi, or the uh, the ship family from Bahalia, Mississippi, and just uh, Luther Strong from Dalesburg, Kentucky, all these resonant names and the beautiful music they were making. Well, uh, if, the real way to learn the music, not just from records, was to learn from people themselves. What was so fascinating where the things coalesced for me, Michael, on this is that these records, which are conceived in ethnography rather than commerce, are made in people's homes. So the kitchen clocks are ticking and trucks are driving by and dogs barking and sometimes neighbors interrupting while someone's playing. And so there was this kind of uh, three-dimensional entirety to, the, uh, to those recordings. Uh, they were being in life. And so to s learn from people themselves and, and because... Fleming said, he said, and he said it right, he said, look, the difference between seeing a polar bear at the Brookfield Zoo and going to the Arctic, it's just, you know, you've got, you've got to see what this means to the people who make it. So following that model is how I was learning to play, visiting traditional musicians in their homes in the South. And then that led me to uh, eventually put together an album for Rounder called A Treasury of Library of Congress Field Recordings. So what I did is I surveyed every recording that had been issued by the Library of Congress on those records. So there are some 80, some 70, 70 or 80 some records. And uh, I, to sonically unify the record, I just decided to make everything that was made as a product of the uh, disc cutting machines. These are these portable isn't exactly the right word to use because these things, these disc cutting machines weighed, you know, 150 pounds or more. Plus they would have these uh, lead acid storage batteries, direct current, when they were beyond the electrical grid to power them. And sometimes the batteries would uh, wind down and so the sound would go up like that. So what I wound up doing is putting together, finding 30 songs I thought were just extraordinary and just following them up. And and that's really the genesis and sense of the book. It's building on what I already had done and known in sense of learning from people. It's, and then, but when I did write my book, and it was 18 years in the making altogether, I didn't bring my banjo with me to visit these older people. And that was so painful personally for me. But I knew that, you know, often elderly people that I was visiting, they'd want to be entertained. And I, you know, I never hid the fact that I was a musician from them or anything. And you know, I sort of look straight out of central casting like a professor or something. And, uh, so I just had to leave that home and hear their stories. They, not my story, their stories. So I was in prisons, I was in people's homes, I was in churches, I was in all kinds of settings uh, where, uh, I, and, and in fact, I actually got to know three of the performers themselves were still alive at the time. And th that was really wonderful. 
Stephen Wade, you covered so much ground there. I, I don't know where to begin, but how about when you, you produced the Treasury of Library of Congress field recordings for Rounder Records? Was the, yes. was the intention also to make this book with it? It was apparent to me and my colleagues at the Library of Congress that what I really was doing was far more than liner notes, and it was writing a book. And within two weeks of launching a project, the late Jerry Parsons reference librarian, uh, Joe Hickerson, who was head of the archive, and Alan Jabor, the late Alan Jabor, who was director of the American Folklife Center, Alan and, and uh, Jerry were saying, you're writing a book. <laughs> and, uh, and that's really what happened. Stephen Wade is on the line. Stephen, in 2015, the beautiful music all around us, field recordings and the American experience, was finally published. It took you 18 years. That's right. That's what it took. And, <laughs> and, uh, and when I originally wrote it, Michael, it was 900 pages. Uh, so nobody wants the New York phone book, by the way. Who, um, ed who, ed who was your editor? The editor was the late Judith McCullough, who is the legendary editor from the University of Illinois Music in American Life series. And my mentor, uh, uh, very much so, was the late Archie Green, who named that series Music in American Life. And he was a pioneer of the sort of case study method and of folks on case studies. So I was very much in line with that. Judy uh, was director there of that series for some 35 years an absolutely dearest, most brilliant person. But when it came time to edit that book, she said, this is your book. You do it. You figure out what belongs here, what does it. And what was, Michael, so I felt morally obliged, duty-bound, to listen to every single version of those 13 songs that are in that book that had been recorded. And to learn about them, I, I just felt I morally owed that to the reader. Uh, but the reader isn't interested in it all, every version ever recorded. They're interested in the one version that's on the CD in the back of the book. And the hardcover edition has the CD. So in editing it, I sort of had to figure out what was the through line of each chapter? What, what was it really about? So those eight months I spent shortening the book and making it a better product was, were a heady time for me. And I remember, you know, I'd, I'd tell my wife, oh, I'm lost. And she said, well, you'll find it, you'll find it. <laughs> Actually, I did. I know you, well, you've won numerous awards with the book, uh, The Beautiful Music All Around Us, uh, Field Recordings, and The American Experience. Stephen, the amount of detail that you get behind each one of these 13 songs that you explore, going to the origins, talking to people, requires a lot of detective work. How much luck is involved? Well, that, that there, I'll, I'll tell you a lucky story. Uh, it, it, it's... It, it, it's mostly just work and listening and paying attention. I, I made it my business, of course, to read all earlier scholarship on any of these given songs and, and, uh, and going into towns. Luck is I, always the matter as much as trust. And that's a bigger issue uh, of is this stranger, my, someone like myself, uh, worthy of being entrusted with family information? Uh, but in terms of luck, I'll tell you a luck thing. I guess it's luck meets preparation or whatever that is, the, the old adage. I, I had worked and worked on my chapter two, the one on Rock Island Line, and I had driven the length of the Rock Island Line Railroad with a tape recorder in my hand, you know, trying not to swerve off the road, all 133 miles of it from uh, Memphis, Little Rock, and I had, I had met the older brother of the man who sang the song. I visited him. I had been to the prison where it was recorded. All these things in Arkansas, it meant so much to have all that. And I still didn't have a good story. I just, I had a story, but it wasn't, I just, I just hadn't reached critical mass. And I, I just knew from the inside. 
And I knew from the recordings that were made, actually again by John A. Lomax and his assistant, uh, Leadbelly, who was the chauffeur and the music demonstrator on that trip, it was shortly after uh, Leadbelly had been released from prison for the final time, that the two, they had recorded two different versions that were very similar in two different units of the Arkansas uh, penitentiary prison system. So clearly the song had a prior life, even though it had never been recorded before, because these two different groups of prisoners who didn't know each other necessarily and lived in different places are singing a song similarly but differently. So it's clear that something happened. So I thought, well, all right, maybe, maybe there's some... Uh, written evidence of this song someplace. So I first went over to this sort of um, non-public library that the Smithsonian has. It was a, it's in the building now where NPR is located, but at that time it was, it was not a public facility it, and it was, the Smithsonian kept a lot of library materials there. And I went through all the Pullman Porter magazines from before 1934 when the song was recorded, nothing. And then I found out, Michael, that there was a magazine published by the Rock Island Railroad, and there was one library in America, one library I knew of that had it. And I thought, well, I'm just gonna have to look through that. So I had them send every single issue to an interlibrary loan out here to a university library near here. And uh, I thought, oh, this is gonna be like watching paint dry, you know, I, I, but I've just got due diligence, I've got to go through this. And it turned out that the railroad was encouraging its employees to write songs and to sing songs and to write poems. And uh, from every level, from the president on down, they had a classical music orchestra, they had string bands, they had locals, uh, just every kind of way of, of kind of musical genre you could imagine, celebrating the Rock Island because they were called booster songs. How different is that today from a construction company that has a soccer team to raise consciousness about the company and to uh, enhance workplace solidarity and enjoying being together at the job, but having fun. So there it was in a tiny extra small print in the back of one particular issue of news from the local and I'm turning the pages, and there it was. It was the obviously the original Rock Island line. And it not only named who wrote it, it was an engine wiper. He was cleaning, he cleaned engines uh, in the Little Rock Yards, who sang with him, and his bosses named who was in the audience, and they're named in that original version of the song, which you'll find you know, printed there. Now, I don't call attention to this big discovery, but I, it's big for me in the book particularly, but it, it, very rarely do we ever find out the point of origin of a folk song. What matters is who has it at the time and how they treat it. But in the case here, this was immediate. And I, I just knew in, a, in an instant what I was looking at. So I tried calling Judy McCullough up over at the University of Illinois Press to tell her what it took me three times on a touch tone phone to dial it. I was shaking so much. <laughs> you know, this is like Thomas Watson discovering DNA. I mean, I just couldn't believe it. I, it was just an extraordinary moment. So you it's certainly luck. The fact that my eyes didn't you know, look at someone walking past, you know, just at that moment. And I just saw it there on the page and it was just oozing out. So it, uh, you know, it's different. The song is a little different from the version that was recorded four years later, but it's clearly the same song. So it's, and I went to the church where it was recorded, where that church formerly stood. And it's just, it's just, it's just enormously rich experience. But there, I hope that's, a, that's perhaps too long an answer. <laughs> replied your question about luck but i guess preparation meets luck there it certainly that was it well know. let me play the the first version the first recording of rock island line the well, one that's in the book yeah 
the one that it, that this is the first recording that John Lomax made. Well, this is actually the second. He recorded that other unit at the a couple weeks, a few days earlier. This is the second. This is the one that was issued by the library that I that I drew from that I used on the Treasury and then used in this book. And it was this singer, lead singer's brother that I visited a couple times. And um, and this so was this, recorded in a in prison in yes, at Common State Farm in in uh, in uh, in Arkansas. This is led by Kelly Pace, Robert Kelly Pace. And part of the thing that happened with me throughout the book was in getting to know these families, they entrusted me with family photographs. So most of the pictures in the book, and there's 50, have never seen, most of them have never been published before because they were family pictures of these persons. And I didn't want to use a mugshot of, 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 of Kelly. And this is a, actually a, the one family picture they had. I can't yeah. show the picture, but let me play oh. this song. Yeah, the, go right ahead. Uh, the Rock it's Island Line. Well, Jesus died to save me and all of my sin. A while it's glory to God, we're gonna meet him again. I said, the Rock Island Line is a mighty good road. I said, the Rock Island Line is the road to ride. I said, the Rock Island Line is a mighty good road. If you want to ride, you got to ride it like you're fine. Buy your ticket at the station on the Rock Island Line. Well, the train left Memphis at half past nine. Well, it made it back to the Rock at 849. I said, the Rock Island Line is a mighty good road. I said, the Rock Island Line is the road to ride. I said, the Rock Island Line is a mighty good road. If you want to ride, you've got to ride it like you're fine. Buy your ticket at the station on the Rock Island Line. Well, Jesus died to save me and all of my sin. Oh, well, a glory to God, we're gonna meet him again. I said, the Rock Island Line is a mighty good road. I said, the Rock Island Line is the road to ride. I said, the Rock Island Line is a mighty good road. If you want to ride, you gotta ride it like you're fine. Buy your ticket at the station on the Rock Island Line. Rock Island Line, that's an early recording, obviously, from the Treasury of Library of Congress field recordings. Also in the book, The Beautiful Music All Around Us, with a chapter dedicated to the song written by my guest, Stephen Wade. And Lead Belly, of course, made a big hit of, out of that. Yes, and he transformed the song. What was clear, Lead Belly witnessed the song there. That's how he learned the song. And three years later, 1937, he starts recording the song. But his version was entirely different. It was, he turned it into a solo performance. What's going on here in Kelly Pace's thing is essentially a quartet song. The model is a gospel quartet. And when you, and when you look at the version that I found, that was the, the musical style, the reference point that, that was being used. The, the lyrical progress of the song goes from trade to travel. The emphasis in the original version, and again, it's so rare to ever find an original version of something, the, the beginning point. Stephen Wade is on the line, the beautiful music all around us. You, we talked a little bit about Lead Belly, but I noticed in your uh, research you ended up 
in Lead Belly's cell. Oh, yes, you're right. That's right. I mentioned that. Um, yes, that was in Texas. That was before it was in Angola. This was at the at Huntsville Walls. Yeah, I was in a cell block. Uh, yeah, it's, it's now uh, not used. It's an empty cell block, and, it, and it, it's haunting. This has been there since the time of Civil War. Um, it, and, and one of the guards who was with me as I was walking through it said, this place is haunted. I mean, uh, and, and it was, you know, it's, it, it's appalling, too. I mean, you, there's a box there that they would put people in uh, for punishment. I, I mean, it's a rough place. I and mean, all the prisons I went to, I was given a great deal of access. Um, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't talking to living prisoners. I was trying to see the places where those recordings had occurred heard some of the churches you know i was permitted to record um were you frightened at all were you were you welcome at all places i was frightened at one texas prison and what happened is is um this is at brazoria uh uh and uh, the uh, guard in front of me put on a raincoat and we were going to walk down the what was called the ad seg section that's administrative segregation which is essentially solitary confinement but the way it worked in that uh, place was uh, it was just a triple mesh uh, wiring in between the, the prisoner and the hallway. And the corridor was very narrow. And he put on this raincoat. And I said, what, what are you doing? You know, he said, well, I don't want to get chunked. And he didn't offer me a raincoat. <laughs> and, you know, chunked, you can imagine what that means, people throwing stuff at you. And I was scared, um, but I wouldn't have missed it for the world. I mean, I remember someone looking at me with a gimlet eye, and it was scary. There was, you know, there were surprising moments. There was one woman that I visited, I got to be really good friends with, but I had no idea when I first saw her, uh, this is in um, Mississippi, that, that um, I kept walking in front of her. I was in her kitchen telling her all about this particular... So she, she, had, she was related to and knew Ordell Graham, who's uh, chapter three in the book, and I have two of her songs there. And when I was visiting uh, Nancy Hunter, who was actually taught at that school, uh, it was a segregated school, it was a, a, a Rosenwald school, she was in a swivel chair holding her little dog Jojo in her lap, and her hand was in her pocket. And I, I didn't pay attention to this at all. And so when I would walk to the side of the kitchen, she would sort of swivel with me. And as I walked the other side, she would swivel. And I wasn't paying attention to this at all. And then, and then at, right at the end of it all, when I got finished with talking, and, and she pulled a gun out of her pocket. She'd, she'd had a thirty-eight special aimed at me the entire time. No holster. And, and she was like moving like a ball turret gunner, you know, the whole time. And I, I, you know, I took a few breaths then because it was this scary looking thing and everybody in town knew that nancy hunter packed heat everybody except steve wade you know i didn't know <laughs> and uh but she took out the gun to show me that she trusted me that's why she was showing me because here she was alone her husband passed away it was a safety measure that everybody would know that nancy carried a weapon so i did subsequently visit her uh, we were uh, she's a wonderful person. I miss her dearly. And I, I never asked her again during subsequent visits whether she still had that gun in her pocket <laughs> or not. But, so that was sort of scary, Michael. I <laughs> Were they, your, your book, The Beautiful Music All Around Us, contains such personal life stories of the people you researched, including robbery and murder, alcoholism and domestic violence. Were you surprised that these families were so open with you? 
Well, that was the thing. One family, as one family said, where the alcoholism was a particular issue in the case of their father, they said, we want his story told because they recognized the achievement that that their father had made this lasting work of art, despite the frailties within his... So it's just a complex story because we have this beautiful art and and complicated lives. Uh, Speaking with Stephen Wade, his book, The Beautiful Music All Around Us, is about the people who made a lot of these early recordings. Mm-hmm. Tell, well, tell me about Bill Stepp and and what you found interesting about about writing about him. Well, that was endlessly interesting. Um, for one thing, I found out his act correct name, which was William Hamilton Stepp. It had been written for a long time as W. M. Stepp, uh, sort of like a lawyer. Uh, but uh, it, it, the first thing his daughter and granddaughter said corrected me on when I walked into their house was that. Um, and you can hear him on the recording, and that his his daughter said that's that's you know that's that's her dad right there. He's saying that's the bony part, that's the bony part. And he's talking about the part in a tune that's richest with military connotation. I learned so much about him, of course, about his personal history. I I went to the cave where he w- grew up. I mean, he was his mother was um, a part Nodaway Indian. His father was a local, oh. I don't know, dignitary, I guess would be a way to put it, a well-established person. And they lived, um, just the mother and her son and Bill, lived the first five years of Bill's life in a cave in Kentucky along the river. That sounds really exotic. It's not. Uh, It was like a homeless, the way someone sleeps under a bus shelter. Uh, I was in that cave, but at the age of five, he became... I learned from the family, a foster child, essentially. It was a, a, another word for it then. It was called a bound boy. And it was in that home where he began to learn to play the fiddle. Uh, in learning about his song, this is a tune that has made its way uh, from across the world. That's, uh, and it's extraordinary because this is the same uh, piece of music. He had a very unusual setting for the uh, tune Bonaparte's Retreat, which is normally played as a march a steady march, but he played it as a reel, all out. And it's very fast and quick when you listen to it. In 1941, uh, Ruth Crawford Seeger uh, was transcribing these field recordings for a book that was going to be published. It was called uh, Our Singing Country. She was she had an Ainsley Variable Speed uh, turntable, and she was slowing it down and getting these notes and she caught them very accurately she said she couldn't get the fiddling the bowing of the fiddle that 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 eluded her but you not need to be a fiddler to know how to play like bill step but she did get the tune and aaron copeland who knew how to read a piece of music out of staff uh took that and used that in the hoedown section in rodeo uh, by agnes DeMille. and so that piece of music became one of his most famous works. And then it goes into the beef commercial with Robert Mitchum and, uh, you know, it's beef, it's what's for dinner. It was a hit for Emerson, Lake and Palmer, you know, and progressive rock. And so when you're hearing 20 violins and a timpani and a woodblock uh, all playing at once, we're hearing Bill Stepp because it was a note for note transcription. No, to be fair, uh, Copeland's setting was his own and very, very inventive in its own way and, and has differences. But the the melody, that unique rendering of Bonaparte's retreat from a march into a reel, that's Bill's step. And that's what comes from that 
transcription of his recording. So it goes from this cave in Kentucky of absolute poverty to Tanglewood. I mean, it makes this enormous range that has crossed. Here is Bill Stepp's Bonaparte's Retreat, recorded by Alan Lomax in 1937. Bowling part. That's the bowling part. Just a small sample of Aaron Copeland's Hoedown, a section from Rodeo. That was conducted by Michael Tilson Thomas in the San Francisco Orchestra. And we could hear the source of Aaron Copeland's symphony through Bill Stepp, Kentucky fiddler recorded in 1937 by Alan Lomax. Comes along with the book, The Beautiful Music All Around Us, Field Recordings and the American Experience. The author... Stephen Wade is my guest. Another artist that you feature in your book is Vera Hall. And you write, when Alan Lomax made this recording with Vera, Vera was cleaning up and straining up and at first reluctant to sing this song. 
Well, she had to wash the dishes before they let her sing. I mean, that's, so that's what I was referring to there. I mean, uh, so, you know, she, she moved between being this servant to being this performer within seconds, you know, during the time that she that was happening. I mean, I, I think that's emblematic, don't you? I mean, the, the, she's expected to do both jobs, uh, both be the performer. Was she, was she, I mean, I know she's saying uh, she was a little bit reluctant. The reluctance that I talk about in the chapter is that she was reluctant to sing a blues for the collectors because that wasn't really her idiom, and yet she did. Uh, That's that beautiful version of Another Man Done Gone that so many people have learned from her 1940 recording. But her husband had been on a chain gang there in Livingston, her second husband, and she learned it from him. Prior to that, that song was already a hit, a jukebox hit uh, for Big Joe Williams, who recorded it several times, and then others have done it. It's been recorded some 50 or 60 times as um, Baby, Please Don't Go. But her version is different. Uh, She has different lyrics uh, in Another Man Done Gone. Uh, I I think of it really, it's not really a lover's complaint, which Baby, Please Don't Go. It's more like a civil rights anthem in in the lyrics that she's using. Viral Hall was primarily a a singer of spirituals, so and children's songs. So that's what her reluctance was. She's just essentially being asked to go beyond her normal repertory. One of the verses goes, "Walk your log." Uh huh. Uh, And does that was that the reference to domestic violence? Well, what I, I one of the persons who collected from her in 1950, subsequent. Uh, to the 1940, was uh, Harold Courlander, and he probed this verse with her, and I, I go into that in the um, chapter, and, and it's, that was essentially a threat by the escaped convict that if you tell on me, you're, you're in trouble. Uh, and so it, 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 that was what, uh, according to what Vera ex- expressed to Harold Courlander, was the intention there of that, of that verse. Let's listen to this original recording of Vera Hall. Another man done gone Another man done gone From the county from another man done gone I didn't know his name I didn't know his name I didn't know his name, I didn't know his name. He had a long chain on, he had a long chain on, he had a long chain on, he had a long chain on. He killed another man. He killed another man, he killed another man, he killed another man. I don't know where he's gone. 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 I'm going to walk you alone. I'm gonna walk your log, I'm gonna walk your log, I'm gonna walk your log. That's perfect. Another man done gone. Another man done gone to the county farm. Another man done gone. 
I didn't know his name 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 He had a long chain on. He had a long chain on. Had a long chain on. Another Man Gone, we heard her version, and then Stephen Wade's version of Another Man Done Gone from the, a storyteller's story. And I, I played, I set her melody to a guitar and, and had a wonderful bassist uh, play both plucked and bowed bass behind it. And I, uh, Alex Lockamon, I think he did a nice, wonderful job. Tell me more about Vera Hall. In the forties, she only left Alabama once in her life, and it was to come to New York and sing and to be recorded uh, this by Alan Lomax at his home and to perform over at Columbia University. And uh, I think there's a photograph in a book of that program that she was on that night. And I uh, worked with all of those tapes. One of the details you say in passing in your book, how when Alan Lomax released recordings of Big Bull Brunzi or Sonny Williams, he would not use their real names, so the political songs would not have any backlash against them. That, that was a decision that they made then. Um, my teacher, you know, Fleming Brown, uh, he played with Big Bill Brunsey for years. In a Robert Reisman's, Bob Reisman's book about Big Bill, I was delighted to discover that uh, the late Albert Grossman, who at that time hadn't started this club in Chicago called the Gate of Horn, what inspired him to do it was watching one night when he saw uh, Fleming and Big Bill share a night together at another club in Chicago. And, and apparently, according to that Bob Reisman's story and research, uh, that's what inspired Albert Grossman to go out and start a folk club. So this folk club 
leads to the establishment and his managing and his putting together Peter Paul Mary and eventually managing Bob Dylan and stuff. So I, I just love the fact that that a an inspirational moment for Albert Grossman uh, was Fleming Brown playing with Big Bill. Stephen Wade, his book is The Beautiful Music All Around Us. It's great that you're keeping the memory of all these artists alive. Uh, and I, you know, I grew up knowing some of these. I was so fortunate because when I was a little boy, I started playing this kind of music on the guitar. And I, my teacher was a Chicago blues player, so I got to meet, you know, a lot of the great players like Muddy Waters and Helen Wolf and Hubert Sumlin. I got to see all these great players in Chicago and beyond. And, and then I got to meet all these wonderful, a lot of the persons I learned to play the banjo from were born in the late last years of the 19th century. So those people are all gone now. Where did you learn to write? To write, to write. It's cool. <laughs> it's cool. I mean, did you? I mean, like I say, the the book is beautifully researched. Oh, well, thank you. You know, I I guess my two art forms are music and writing. I guess, but I mean, I learned to write by reading, and I learned to write from good people who were patient with me. My my mother had been a writer. There were persons in my family who had been musicians too. I I. I when Homer smote his bloomin' lyre, the things he saw in land and sea, he took and used the same as me. That's from Kipling, and, and Jack Conroy told me that. So just there's just this great worlds of, of resources to draw from, and a, a way to learn to write is, is to think about, uh, is this something that would engage a reader? It's no different than playing for somebody. I don't find my singing and my writing all that, they're different skills, and what's required of them to back them up are different pieces of it, different sources of information. But the end in both uh, is communication. What, what drew you to the banjo? I don't know. I, I just loved the complication of it. I guess I tried to express that in that piece you played at the beginning of, this, of our show today. I mean, that's me writing about the banjo and its many voices and its legacy of voices. I, I'm not really a banjo chauvinist. I'm, I'm a banjo player, but I love the fiddle and I love the guitar and I love, you know, percussive dancing, I love drums, and I mean, I, to me, it's all part of a great, great arc, a great continuity. But well, I got so fortunate with the banjo because I had my teacher, but I had my teacher's teacher, Doc Hopkins. And then my teacher's teacher, Doc Hopkins, had the person who inspired him, Dick Burnett. And Dick Burnett has influenced us all because he was the source of the song, Man of Constant Sorrow. But when Doc was a little boy, which he never recorded, but he passed on to a fellow Kentucky musician who did, Emery Arthur, and then the Stanley Brothers learned it from there, and then George Clooney, you know, lip syncs it in the movie. So in the Old Brother. Fleming once said it so well. It was the last night the three of us were ever together. He said, you know, we are a family. A family is not necessarily just blood. And that was so true. So when I was a teenager, I started accompanying Doc and played with him to the end of his life. He actually outlived Fleming. Doc was born in 1900 in Harlan, Kentucky, came up to Chicago to sing on the National Barn Dance in 1930, a job he had there for 20 years. Altogether, he was on the air for 22 years. In 1948, he started teaching Fleming Brown, who then, because he learned about Doc's from Pete Seeger, who was traveling through Chicago for the Henry Wallace Progressive Party campaign, and because Fleming was a commercial artist, to thank Pete for turning him on to Doc Hopkins, uh, he illustrated his banjo book, the second edition on, and uh, and that's how I learned about Fleming was that Pete Seeger thanks him. I thought, well, who is that in Chicago? And so, uh, and then found him, and, and there he was, and he was better than anything I could imagine, and, and he just flooded the room with his great baritone voice, and 
and it's great playing. And, and then I got to know Doc, and, and it was just enormously rich experience that I'm constantly touched by and think about. And so there's this great continuity. Well, ancestries and continuities again. Stephen Wade is on the line. It seems like you were very fortunate. I, I see these early pictures of you playing banjo, and, and this spirit is there. That There's a light about you just enjoying yourself so much playing the music. Well, that hasn't changed. <laughs> <laughs> Not a bit. I, I, I still love it. I just, I just finished this weekend giving seven hours and 45 minutes of lectures, demonstrations on the banjo for a thing that... It had to occur online, and so this Midwest Banjo Camp had 10 simultaneous classes going on, and it was a really a, a challenging and exciting uh, kind of proposition. And that's a lot of hours to be doing new stuff all the time, but it was fun. Stephen Wade, The Beautiful Music All Around Us, is his book about field recording and the American experience. Great details about the stories behind the song and the people behind the song. Stephen, how about finishing up with a, a song? You have your banjo handy? Oh, okay. Sure. Uh, here. Um. <laughs> 